Thank you for coming to my podcast, Clark Reads Books. Here's chapter 12 of my book, Tom Fool Traveler. Cardinal Rules. Mumbai again. Actually, this was my very first visit. This was the trip that most instructed me in the rules of international travel, all in one go. How many cardinal rules are there to break? More than you would think. After a series of long connecting flights, I had arrived at Chhatrapati Shivaji International Airport in Bombay, which is what Mumbai used to be called. 3 a.m., an impossible hour, of course, and the officials or functionaries addressing the horde of us disgorged from the 747 were no happier about the hour than we were. I managed to get through immigration only to discover at 3 a.m., There was only one luggage conveyor belt, and it was evidently designed for dinky planes, because this one just dumped our luggage off the belt onto the floor. That is, those bags that weren't carried back out the other side and dumped on the airplane hangar side, where they had originally been thrown onto the belt. I know this occurred because I watched native Indians climb through the luggage conveyor exit door and come back a few minutes later in the entrance portal with their luggage in hand. Lord. Anyway, I somehow found my two large bags, which I dragged sleepily outside. It was 4 a.m.-ish by this time. Outside it was still dark as sin, as my mom used to say. There was an inquit swarm of greeters and taxi wallas. I suppose what that's what they call them. Walla is just an Indian term for a native that does manual or servant work. There were a gazillion taxi wallas grabbing at my bags and blurting out variations of colorful but doubtful promises. Best taxi, sir. Cheapest ride into Mumbai, sir. My taxi is directly outside, sir, and you will receive best service from me, sir. I was really pooped and didn't think to walk farther outside and assess for myself what was what. Therefore, I committed the first international travel cardinal error, letting the first greedy taxiwala grab one of my bags and start trundling it away. I could only follow him, dragging my other bag along with my computer case. It turned out, big surprise, that his taxi was not immediately outside, but was something like half a mile's walk away. Or at 4 a.m. it felt like that. We walked down the endless dark street until we were almost outside the airport grounds. Finally, he stopped at what looked like a motor scooter with a small tent over it. Air-conditioned would have been a kindly description. It had a smallish front seat and a slightly larger back seat, both sides completely open to the air, with a cloth top. What I assumed was the taxi driver's son was asleep in front. They evidently lived in this taxi because when the boy got out to help load, I saw the hibachi they kept in front to cook meals. It was too late, I thought, to protest. Wrong. I was just too lazy to walk back to the airport. The younger and older taxi walla packed my bags, one in front with the son and one in back next to me, and then... We putted off. It really was just a two-cycle scooter engine. 
I don't remember the conversation, what there was of it to this day, but of course we discussed which was my hotel. Did he know it? Of course, sir, I know your hotel. Did I say that I had failed to ask up front what was his fee? Cardinal error number two. Anyway, we put-putted out into the night. Smoky exhaust of the little engine cycling back through the sides of the taxi to gradually infiltrate every pore of my skin. We putted, and we putted. The night got darker and darker. It should have been getting lighter, I thought, as we approached the megalopolis. But no, there were fewer and fewer lights. I was sleepily enjoying the humid warmth of the night when I thought... It would be wise to uh, reconnoiter my situation. I got up the courage to ask, Where are we going? To your hotel, sir. All right. But where is this hotel? Where are we actually going? It's so dark. Your hotel is 30 miles outside of Mumbai, sir. What? No, no, no. My hotel is on the shoreline near the gateway to Bombay. It's on the shoreline in the city. The gateway is an old monument on the edge of the Indian Ocean, something like a British Indian Arc de Triomphe built in the very early 20th century to welcome incoming ocean liners and once the arriving king and queen of England. I am sorry, sir. That is not what you told me. Damn it, I said my hotel's name was Green Blossom, or whatever the damn hotel's name was. You said you knew where it was. Yes, I do know, sir. There are 30 or 40 hotels with the name Green Blossom. The closest one to the airport was in this direction. But my hotel is inside Mumbai, not 30 miles away from Mumbai. Oh, that is very unfortunate, sir. Do you have the phone number of your hotel? Yes, I do. We shall stop and call your hotel to find which one of the 30 Green Blossom hotels you are staying at. <sighs> Lord have mercy, I couldn't believe it. Cardinal error number three. Confirm before you leave home where your hotel is and its exact name and address. I had let my office assistant back home make the reservations for me as I was traveling to several different countries. Very lordly of me, I'm sure, treating her like my own office walla. She told me she had gotten a great deal. Apparently she had booked me into the Indian equivalent of Holiday Inn or Motel 6 or some chain with a ton of locations. Dotted, of course, all throughout and outside the city. My driver, probably with conniving malice aforethought, I thought in my black heart, had picked the hotel furthest away from Mumbai on purpose. As I berated myself for my stupidity, the taxi drove on. Finally, he stopped where there was a phone booth beside the road under a light. There was also a family living in and around the booth. A full family, man, woman, children, a little home built up there. The driver explained that I would have to pay the family for the privilege of using their phone booth. I didn't begrudge this, appreciating how tough life must be if this was their livelihood. 
I gave the driver the phone number and he called. Yes, he said. My hotel was exactly where I had told him. Yes, he now knew where to take me. We got ourselves packed back into our deluxe open-air taxi cart. He turned around and started driving back until the road was all darkness again. Then he stopped, pulling off to the side of the road. As you did not tell me, sir, your hotel was inside the city, sir, and I have driven so far out of the way, you will have to pay extra to drive back. Grr. All right. How much? One hundred dollars. One hundred dollars? I knew that that was more or less the equivalent of two months' pay or some such an Indian rupee. Highway robbery. Yes, one hundred dollars, sir. American? One hundred dollars. The driver looked blandly at me until I looked out into the Stygian darkness. Whatever is the Indian phrase for the river Styx, I was standing on its side. Twenty-five miles away from Bombay, in the middle of Nowheresville. I looked at the driver again. He and I exchanged mental telepathy. I saw him driving away into the night with all my baggage and my computer and my clothes and me standing forlorn on the side of the road and my socks. Not worth it. He couldn't have my computer. Problem was, I had committed cardinal error number four, leaving America without Boku cash in my pocket. This was back in the dark ages before there were ATMs everywhere, much less international use of ATMs. I looked in my wallet. I had $80 cash. I spent some cash getting food in intervening airports. I had expected to get more cash when I got to my hotel. Not smart. Bad karma. I have $80, I said. Taxi Walla considered me sadly, but shrewdly. He instantly transformed into Taxi Maharaja. $100, sir. I have driven far away, and I have a family to support. I saw his family sitting in the front seat next to my suitcase, which his son was fondly petting. I have $80, I said, cash. I assessed my swappable wealth. My computer? Not going to happen. My cheap pens? He wouldn't want them. My watch? It was not that great, but not that bad either. I'll give you my watch, I said. The cash and your watch. Now, sir, if I may say so only. Taxi Maharaja had become Genghis Khan of the taxis. He telepathed the lone American on the side of the road mental picture to me again. I handed over the cash and my watch. Thank you so very much, sir, he said. We are so sorry for the inconvenience. And that was the end of the official Welcome to India shakedown. On we drove. It was factually a long way back into the city. But as he pulled our little caravan up in front of my small hotel, the sun was just rising over the Indian Ocean. It was lovely and Asian and smelled entirely new. This was for sure not the American Southwest. I was somewhere new. People and traffic were already zooming in and around one another, their little taxis making their toot-toot sonar beeps like white bats.
Taxiwala and son put my bags onto the sidewalk and quickly drove off before I could ask for their help to lug them up into the hotel. I'm sure they did not want the hotel clerk to hear how much they had charged me. I would think they would have wanted to come in and gloat. The next day I found a very friendly taxiist. He heard I was going to be in Mumbai for a full week and would need to drive from place to place. He asked to be my personal taxi for the entire week. How much, I said. Twenty-five dollars, he answered. For the week? Oh, yes, sir, thank you. For the week. Okay. It was many lessons well learned in one swoop. Know your hotel. Have more cash. Don't take the first taxi ever. Choose your people better. And have an AK-47 or bazooka with you in case you need to have an intimate conversation with a taxi thug alongside a dark highway. The Philippines. There are other cardinal rules. There's a whole rules catalog just on the subject of luggage. I was at the airport in Manila in the Philippines, about to return to the United States via a midway stop in England where I would visit friends. I had my two bags allowable for international flights, packed to within ounces of the maximum 50 pounds per bag. I was going through the normal check-in process. All was fine. The airline ticket clerk had my bags on the weighing pen. There will be an additional fee, she said, for the extra weight and extra bag, sir. What extra bag, I said. I'm traveling internationally back to the U.S., via London Heathrow. Yes, sir, but you were stopping over in London and then changing to another airline to return to the U.S. Yes, but that's still international travel. They accepted two bags as normal on my way here. I'm sorry, sir, but this flight is just a one-way trip to London. You are allowed one bag of 40 pounds. Forty pounds? The ticket Tsarina was in the winning position. She had the reins. I was the donkey. She just gazed at me. I swear I could hear the wind blowing tumbleweeds for miles across the vast desert between her left ear and her right ear. All right, I said. How much will the extra fee be? Figure, figure. Twelve hundred dollars, sir. Twelve hundred dollars? I couldn't restrain my voice. They heard me all the way back to the rear of the line, to the parking lot. Yes, sir. Twenty dollars per pound. Two bags at one hundred pounds. Flight allowance, forty pounds. Overage, sixty pounds. Twenty times sixty. I know what twenty times sixty is. Twelve hundred dollars is twice what my return ticket cost. I am sorry, sir. I glared at her. Perhaps, she said kindly, you should have checked before you came to the airport. I checked before I left the United States. I don't have $1,200 for baggage fees. What am I supposed to do? She thought. You can leave one bag behind, sir. Others have done this. Others have left one of their bags Behind? Perhaps you would like to speak with a supervisor? How did she guess that? It couldn't have been the steam screaming out of my ears. 
supervisor person came over. Supreme supervisor carefully explained to me that there was nothing that could be done. There were hundreds of passengers. There was only so much room. Bullpucky, there was only so much room. It was a seven goddamn 47. It was a flying brick designed to carry impossible loads. It could take off with tanks inside it. It could handle my one extra suitcase, especially if I forked up $1,200, it could. What would you like to do, sir? I fumed. I don't know. Then step aside, sir. Please. I did. Cardinal rule number five. Know what the baggage rules are for every stop of your trip. Everyone else in the world now knows this. Was I the only one not to know this then? No, because other people had been hit with the second bag ploy and had apparently left bags behind. I pulled my bags aside. Damn if I was going to leave one bag to these thieves to sell on the black market. I looked at the line of people still waiting to check in. Nearly everyone had only one bag. Okay, I was an idiot, but I was not going to leave my stuff for these pricks. I dragged my bags over to a large trash can, only 10 or 20 feet from the line, snaking forward to the airline counter. I opened my suitcase and started stuffing my silk suits and fancy shirts and shoes down into the trash can. This created a nice little stir. Good. In microseconds, supervisor person showed up beside me, rubbing his hands unctuously. What are you doing, sir? I am stuffing my $600 silk suits in your goddamn trash can. That is what I'm doing. I'm not leaving them here for you. I must admit that I intentionally said this in a voice designed to carry across the terminal. I was very pissed off. Sir, you cannot do this. Watch me. One assumes that only in a film will one ever get a chance to say that line. Put your clothes back in your suitcase, sir. I will be right back. I did not put the clothes back in the suitcase. I waited, simmering like a Filipino volcano. Another prospective passenger in line looked at me questioningly. They want 1,200 extra baggage fees, I said across to him, and I'm not going to pay it. His eyes dilated and he swayed, but he didn't say anything nor leave his place in line. Supervisor, now truce negotiator, came back. I have gotten permission to grant you the two-bag limits, sir, but you will still have to pay the extra for the ten pounds overage on each bag. And how much will that be? Two hundred dollars? I was pleased to see that at least he was asking. And he was worried I might refuse. I felt I had won and had better take advantage of it. Done. Please step over here, sir, after you repack your bag, sir. I repacked, smiling wickedly. We got the bag extortion paid, and they got me out away from the view of the other passengers, which I'm sure was their top priority. Get him out of here. In the waiting area, near the flight's gate, I was standing beside a nun. She told me she and her convent had been saving up for quite some time to send her to Holland, 
where she was now going to live and serve for some years. I couldn't help myself. They were going to charge me 1200 bucks for an extra bag, I told her. Oh yes, dear me, she said. They told me the same thing. I didn't have the money. I had to give them one of my suitcases. They took one of your suitcases? Yes. What is the world coming to? Oh my. I wisely didn't allow myself to speak. They took a suitcase away from a nun traveling to their country to serve poor people. Unbelievable. I had got away with it because I threw a fit, but she was a quiet little nun. It would be inappropriate to name the airline, but the initials begin with K and end with M and only one letter in between. And yes, I wrote a blistering letter of protest when I got home. I listed out a few cardinal rules of my own. They come from the devil's guide to malevolent acts. Mexico. This was another of my early trips abroad. This was the time I met George, who was abducted during that Mexican financial negotiation, and the time I visited the Socolo in downtown Mexico City. All of that, however, was later in this visit. Earlier on, I was first schooled in things digestive. As a Southwest Desert boy, I was familiar with at least some types of Mexican food. I loved hot chili, and having vacationed in northwestern Mexico, sometimes on fishing trips to the Gulf of California, I had learned, of course, not to drink the tap water and to avoid street-served foods. Through sheer luck, I had not contracted Montezuma's revenge. Don't ever remember even having gotten diarrhea. This trip, I was staying as the guest of a friend who lived in the far southern colonia of Mexico City, Fuentes de Pedregal. This neighborhood was adjacent to the hills that climb up behind the city, as well as above it on all other sides. The large hill behind us was walled off into sections by rough stone walls. My hosts explained that the walls were to define plots and to assert that these plots were owned in order to keep squatters from camping on the land. There was apparently quite some conflict brewing over land rights. In any case, I soon got to think this over in detail as, yes, somewhere, somehow, I ate or drank the wrong thing and was now spending my time on the royal white throne in the bathroom. At first, it was just some hours. It seemed my body was fighting back. I was young and felt I had a steel-lined stomach. I could fight off anything and was sure I'd get control back and be able to eat, drink, and retain my food. After a couple days, I saw this was not to be. Now I was virtually living on the white seat. I didn't even bother to dress, but would sit there naked, reading to myself to while away the time. Every time I tried to go back to bed, my guts would call me back to the bathroom. It didn't really hurt. I just 100% thoroughly and completely and utterly emptied myself out. I could eat, but didn't want to. I asked the house cook to make me consomme and sipped that. Surely this had to end. I had found, of all things, a book of critical essays where George Bernard Shaw was berating Shakespeare for being too wordy. How intellectual was that? Actually, the essays were delightful, and I read and read. And when not, 
I looked out the little window in the wall next to the toilet, thanking the architect for his brilliance in providing this view of the real world for the benefit of those of us shrinking and fading away into nothingness. I can't explain why I didn't ask for an antibiotic. I wasn't philosophically opposed to them, I just didn't take drugs. Medications had always made me sick as a child, and as soon as I wasn't forced to take them, I just stopped. Cardinal rule number six. If and when you get dysentery, take the damn antibiotic. I didn't know I had dysentery. This disease has felled more troops than all the battleships, cannons and rifles, bows and arrows, swords, clubs, and maces of all the battles in history. Troops would get sick and then waste away in strength and vitality. Bad water killed them. And I was wasting away, too. Was I eventually going to turn inside out? My hosts didn't seem to think much of my dilemma. They got up in the morning, left for work, and came home in the evening asking how I was doing. They assumed I'm sure I would ask for help if I needed it. Instead, I just got skinnier and skinnier. Days went by. I brought a pillow into the bathroom to put up against the wall so I could rest my head. I don't know what I was waiting for. A change? All earlier stomach ailments had eventually stopped. My body would start to win over the invading alien, and life would go on. But I was in alien country now, and the alien was camped out, for good, in my innards. Sitting there maybe the fifth afternoon, I saw through my little side window mounted police ride by on horseback, with long clear shields, helmets, and rifles. They were riding back towards the hill behind the house. One policeman turned and looked in the window where my skinny body sat. He nodded, and I nodded back. Later I heard shots. You can assess my idiot weakness by the fact that I didn't even leave the bathroom to go look. Oh, shots. There must be fighting going on. At the end of that day, I reviewed my lassitude from the perspective of being a spirit sort of floating up and above my wasting little body. There was just a gun battle, and you didn't even go look, I thought to myself. What's up with you? Take some action, Nix. You are in trouble. Really. Okay, I thought back to myself. Okay, don't rush me. I considered my body. Although it had proved to be such a weakling, I knew that there was still a few dregs of life force left in there someplace. What do you want? I grouchily asked to my body, aloud. An answering voice, immediately and without reservation, said, Hamburguesa. I swear, a ridiculous, deep, god-of-your-innards voice. I can't eat a hamburger, I argued back silently. Hamburguesa, repeated the demon. I pictured the greaseball hamburgers served up at the American-style Vips Big Boy restaurant in downtown Mexico. Yes, said Demon. What the hell? My body was finally talking. I'd better listen. I pulled on my pants, shoes, and a shirt, and started off to the bus. I had less than nothing left in my guts, so I wasn't worried about having to rush to a toilet. Actually, I was thinking only about the hamburguesa, the image of which miraculously began to make my stomach tingle. I caught the bus down to the Vips, pronounced Vips, in Mexico. 
I sat at the counter there and asked for hamburguesa con papas fritas. They soon brought the slimy, super-oily creation. Go Greece. Go American greasy food. I took my first bite. Body said, hamburguesa. And I kept eating, finishing the whole thing, including all the awful fries, which were heaven. No doubt about it. I had an American-born, American-bred body. Wherever other parts of my body came from, my stomach was American. It knew what it wanted. It didn't want to waste away to a dried taco shell in Mexico. It wanted to be stuffed with the food of life, hamburger and french fries. Who would have thought? That was the end of the dysentery. Bam! Over! Since then, I've had repeats of the runs, diarrhea, dysentery in almost every Asian country. But after trying that first waited-out technique that nearly did me in, I have elected to take the locally recommended antibiotic immediately, as well as sometimes resorting to other more exotic remedies. A drop of iodine, for example, or colloidal silver. But even to me, that seemed to be heading in the witch-doctor direction but you do begin to be rather fearful of that explosion of fluids from your body, and you'll experiment with the weirdest things to prevent it. Me, I finally settled on probiotics that I knew my body and guts loved, and that wholesome solution has done the trick for quite a while now. I still don't like drugs. Don't trust the pharmaceutical overlords. But never again has my body whacked me on the head and ordered me to dress and go get a hamburger for crying out loud. What can I say? It absolutely worked. Cardinal rule 6A. If you are turning inside out and there aren't any antibiotics around, ask your body. Do what it says. Thanks for listening. In case you're interested, Tom Fool Traveler is available on Kindle and hard copy via Amazon. The earlier chapters are available, too, on this podcast, Clark Reads Books. Please come back for the last chapter, at least of this book, Comings and Goings. Until then.